today on EdgeFX. If there is an antidote to how badly the, the U.S.-Mexico border has devolved in the political discourse, the antidote is, is familiarity. Historian Elena McGrath speaks with C.J. Alvarez about his new book, Borderland, Border Water, A History of Construction on the U.S.-Mexico Divide, just out this month from University of Texas Press. They discuss the environmental history of the U.S.-Mexico border, the range of organizations trying to map, manage, and develop that region, and why any story about the border has to consider bridges as well as walls. Well, hi, CJ. Welcome, and thanks so much for talking to me. So my first question is, when you began this project, where did you think you were going? What was the story you started off wanting to tell? Well, it started like so many first books do as a, as a PhD thesis, a dissertation. And I think that when my graduate committee takes a look at this book, they're going to find it pretty hard to recognize because there's only about, I don't know, maybe 5% of my dissertation that's in the book. It started as a history of, of policing. I thought that the best way to approach the history of the U.S.-Mexico border was through law enforcement agencies, specifically the Border Patrol. When I started grad school, Kelly Lila Hernandez's book, uh, Migra, had not come out yet. I was still in dissertation form. And so it was this kind of unknown territory of like, well, what, you know, how should we think about the the border? And, and what a lot of people, the answer a lot of people came to, including myself as a grad student, was, well, let's look at the cops and, and let's look at enforcement and immigration policy and, you know, black market policing and that sort of thing. And that's how the dissertation started. And when I moved to Texas to take the job at UT, I became very interested semi-independently of, of border-related stuff in infrastructure projects because Texas is such a, a quintessentially heavy infrastructure state in terms of energy transfers, in terms of highways, in terms of just urban sprawl, take your pick. And, in terms of putting oil money into big projects. And yeah, things. exactly. I mean, there's just tons of stuff built to just accommodate the amount of, you know, natural resources and the amount of the, and the population of, of Texas. And so then Kelly's book came out and Rachel St. John's book came out. And I realized, I'm like, well, you know, I don't want to reinvent the wheel here uh, in terms of looking at the border in terms of uh, in terms of policing. And so I thought, well, I think there's a story to be told about the U.S.-Mexico divide that hasn't been told yet. And that is through these physical building projects on the line, tracing it all the way from the land border in, in San Diego, Tijuana, down to where the land border gives way to the Rio Grande border and then down to the Gulf of Mexico. So that's the that's the short version of the evolution of how I came to think about the project differently. And it's very much I, you know, I owe it to to spending a few years in Texas and getting that perspective, which like so many border related historians have learned before me, Texas is is pretty important. <laughs> I think uh, that makes a lot of sense. And so your story 
does have to do with the border patrol, but at least as important to the story is actually the um, a kind of obscure agency that people don't generally talk about, which is the International Boundary and Water Commission. So can you talk a little bit about about that and and its Mexican equivalent and how that came to be so central to the border? I mean, you're right. I, I do. I write quite a bit about the INS and, and the Border Patrol in the in both its early iterations in the, in the 1920s and, and 30s and 40s, but also down to the present day. It's a, it's a pretty long time span, as you know from from having read the book. I cover more or less from the end of the Mexican American War and the first boundary survey in the 1850s all the way up to to pretty much the Secure Fence Act and the and the the construction that took place after 2006. So yeah, the Border Patrol comes up a lot, but one of the other reasons I branched out from writing about that particular agency was my realization that it's very difficult to reduce border history to a single agency precisely because there are so many different kinds of bureaucracies on both the U.S. and Mexican side that are involved in in orchestrating border-related projects and and so forth. And the IBWC, the International Boundary and Water Commission, is, I think, to my mind, and you can see, you know, for for those of you listening, if you read the book, if you find this this argument convincing, but I think it's if you want to find a least common denominator for border history, it's the International Boundary and Water Commission. Here's why. It's the oldest organization. The the previous iteration of that agency was what was the the boundary commission that first surveyed, demarcated, and delineated the border surveys of the 1850s and 1890s. But it's also very curious because it has a Mexican counterpart, a Mexican mirror side called the CILA, the Comisión Internacional de Límites y Aguas. Which means the exact same thing in Spanish, the International mm-hmm. Boundary and Water Commission. They're both federal agencies, but unlike other federal agencies that have their headquarters in Washington, D.C. and Mexico City, of course, the Border Patrol's headquarters in Washington, D.C., the capital, the headquarters of the IBWC on the U.S. side is in El Paso, Texas, one of the ultimate oldest border towns. And then the headquarters of the CILA is in Ciudad Juarez, Chihuahua, right on the other side of El Paso. Not in So these are border agencies. Yeah, they're border agencies. They 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 live and work in the in the space that they um, that they they administer. And they're bilingual. Uh, all the official documents are produced uh, in both English and Spanish. And the the commissioners of both agencies you know, are physically close to one another. They don't have to go through long diplomatic channels between D.C. and and, um, and Mexico City. And according to oral histories, according to folks I've talked to, according to the good folks at the Texas Observer who've done more current reporting on the IBWC, it seems to be the case that they're pretty friendly with one another. I mean, these are, these are agencies that that get along pretty well especially in contrast to this narrative that we often have of the border that is rooted in antagonism and conflict. It just, that, that 
you have to you have to you see the border differently if you look through the lens of the IBWC and the CELA. And one other thing I would add that I think is particularly interesting about the Boundary and Water Commission is that they're the only agency or agencies, I should say, on both sides of the border that actually think about the U.S.-Mexico divide as one thing, right? Even the Border Patrol, unless you're talking about the highest ranking agents in the, in the Border Patrol, they're not thinking in terms of 2,000 miles of international divide. They're thinking in terms of sectors or in terms of individual agents. They're thinking in terms of just their beat, their, their, the place that they patrol, which could be a very small couple of blocks in a border town. But the Boundary Commission, they're working on storage dams. They're working on historically fencing. They're working on uh, water sanitation issues, cross-border water sanitation issues. Um, and they have to kind of keep an eye on dozens of different cross-border projects that they're involved in administering in a way that no other agency does. And so we talk a lot about the border but we're rarely talking about the the whole thing. We're talking about specific border towns or specific places. But the IBWC and SELA are actually thinking about the whole thing. Yeah, that makes sense. And so they're they're thinking about the whole piece of it partially because of the way the projects they have to take on are are having to operate holistically through a watershed or a series of watersheds. Exactly. Yeah. A series um, of watersheds. So, yeah. So, I mean, you know, so, so they're not just working on the Rio Grande, which of course they called the Rio Bravo in Mexico. They're working on, you know, smaller watersheds that most people have never heard of, like the new river and the, the Tijuana river uh, and the Colorado river, which people forget, but for, for a few miles at least between um, like down in the, between California, Arizona, uh, Baja California and Sonora, it's the border too. We have, we have a river border out there for about 20, 20 odd miles. Well, so thinking about the structure of the book, the first chapter that you write is really about a series of, um, I guess, adventures for last, lack of a better term of people who are spending various amounts of resources trying to, and, and sometimes giving up in terms of their, their methods of, of, of trying to chart the border. And that's, that's something that is, is kind of an interesting counter history because we think of maps as sort of creating space, but this is really, uh, could people get down the river for a number of decades, even just determined whether or not the border was, constructed on at all yeah i mean there, there's two there's two parts of that there's the land part and there's the water part and the land part and by that i mean the the first border surveys of the 1850s and 1890s are interesting because they're trying to draw a relatively a border that's a relatively straight line which if you put yourself in the, in the context of the mid-19th century, you realize that there aren't very many straight-lined borders in the world at that point. I mean, it's the quintessentially artificial way of, of delineating space. And it was the first in a long line of border policies, especially from the point of view of the United States, that really didn't take into consideration in any way, shape, or form border people 
and, and what was already going on there. It was just kind of, uh, you know, a policy that originated elsewhere. And you can read that not only in the straight lines of the Western land border, but you can also read it in exactly what you pointed out, this kind of like this, oh, my God, we're in desert, we're in a desert and deserts are terrible places. And anybody who lives in a desert is some form of, of savage or, or, or certainly well outside the realm of what we consider, we being the, you know, the, the people who devised this line what we consider to be civilized or civilization. So the river border and choosing that as a river border is fundamentally different because in the mid 19th century, it made sense to choose some feature of the natural environment, whether it's mountains or in this case, a river as just kind of an easy ready-made dividing line. But as you say, I mean, they, the river was in many ways far more intractable than even the most, even the harshest deserts of the Western border, because there's canyons and there's rapids and before any dams were built on the Rio Grande, it was a wild river. And they really couldn't get down it and they didn't survey it uh, for, for quite a while. Turns out by the 1890s and certainly into the 20th century, when property lines become more important in the context of mining and ranching and farming. And when international borders become more important politically, you can't, you couldn't have chosen a worse kind of border than a river, especially a river like the Rio Grande that moves around a lot. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so the river becomes the focus of a lot of border projects precisely because it, uh, it moves around a lot. That's not a desirable feature if you're in the business of trying to create fixed and, and hardened and, uh, and permanent political borders. I think, I think having, having taught classes on the border, it becomes very easy to think about a sort of metaphor of the US-Mexico border as this, this space that is hard to control. But what you are writing about is not not just a metaphor at all. It's the, the river moves. And when the river moves and the treaties are based on the river, that creates problems on for both countries, right? And so this intractability and trying to control the spaces becomes, the, the idea of straightening the river becomes something that uh, is, is not just a, a preoccupation of controlling the landscape. It's very much a, uh, we don't know what to do with this if it if it moves. Yeah, exactly. Is that, yeah. Oh, so what was your experience? I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about what your experience was like in terms of writing this book transnationally, because you had to do, um, because of the nature of the project, you ended up working in the Conagua archives in Mexico as well as, um, you know, U.S. based archives. So can you talk a little bit about your experience there? Yeah. So the, the big document base for this book came out of uh, the National Archives branch in Fort Worth. And I had been to the National Archives in D.C. and in College Park looking through the Border Patrol records and, and related uh, the State Department records, DEA, or what was before the DEA records. 
And, you know, they were really valuable in terms of giving me a perspective on the nature of the border-related bureaucracies. But what I was missing was a, a, a sense of, of the specific places that they were patrolling and interacting with. And the, the solution I came to was to go to the, the Fort Worth branch because there they have almost the entirety of the IBWC records. So, so typically, you know, for big federal agencies, all the documents go back to the, you know, to the headquarters in DC or College Park. And there are, of course, there are INS records, for instance, like also in Fort Worth, but they're, they're typically more regionally based ones that, um, that end up in the regional archives that are hard to, I think, decipher if you don't have the, the headquarters to compare it to. But the IBWC is all there because, again, the headquarters in El Paso. So there, I'm opening boxes that have never been opened before by researchers. I mean, boxes that were in the original box from the IBWC in El Paso, Texas. And I open these boxes and it's just blueprints, construction documents, maps, topographic maps, aerial photographs, you name it, just a gold mine of information that pertains to uh, to the construction projects on the U.S.-Mexico border. So then I go to Mexico City and there they have something that we do not have in the United States, which is the water archive. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple of interesting things, I think, to, to say about that. Guanawa, by the way, is, is one of several agencies that have deposited their uh, their documents there because there were previous iterations of Gonawa, which is one of the water agencies in Mexico, but then there's other water agencies as well that have to do with the irrigation districts and, and that sort of thing. Water, the history of water in Mexico plays a fundamentally different role in Mexican history than it does in the United States, precisely because the capital city Mexico City is built on a like a mar like a lagoon and a marsh that it's a lake, it's a lake right <laughs> that you know that was drained. it was initially a floating city. it was initially yes. a floating city so so and the Spanish you know figured out ways to drain that but the the Mexicas you know the, the we call it Aztecs had already figured out like uh, astonishingly complex hydraulic engineering for for that period in, in early modernity and so there's this centrality of water in Mexican history that is really outsized compared to the way we typically think about water in the United States. And in the academic, you know, historiography, it's typically like west of the hundredth meridian, you know, the, the dry lands of the American West. And you have in, in like you, um, the historiography of the Mexican revolution, increasingly people are writing about Morelos was about water as well, yeah. right? These, these struggles for water, um, struggles for land are always struggles for water, but it, it's a little bit different than simply this is a desert land. Um, but, but no, this is a land of managed water. That's how people live in this space. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So you go into the water archive in, in Mexico City, which is, uh, which is much more manageable than, say, the, the, the National Archive there in the old prison, the old Panopticon, which has been intimidating for for if for no other reason than that it's in this old um, 
this old prison. But you go to the water archives. Speaking of built environments. Yeah, speaking of built environments, my God. But uh, yeah, but the, the folks there are really helpful uh, in a way that, that sometimes it's hard to get the attention of archivists in, in larger collections. And so, you know, I just sat there and we had great conversation. They turned me on to a lot of uh, great material that I, I wouldn't have seen otherwise. And what's so wonderful to me about that archive is that it's organized in very interesting ways. It's organized not only by state. So you can say, well, okay, what kind of projects were being done in, in Chihuahua or in Coahuila or in one of the northern uh, you know, dryland states of the Mexican North? But you can also look up documents based on irrigation district and watershed as well. And so kind of the John Wesley Powell fantasy of the, the mid 19th century, like we shouldn't, we shouldn't make all these straight borders in the American West. We should, we should make states based on watersheds because that's what's going to be really important. Of course, we didn't do that. And now we're seeing the, uh, the, the side effects in both the United States and Mexico of ignoring environmental boundaries, especially when it comes to water in, in violence. Okay. And the controversies over, you know, river water, binational river water, but also among states is, you know, we're, we're well aware of that, especially those of us who live out in this, you know, in the American West or the Mexican North. Texas or California yeah. or Mexico or anything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah and, and thinking about when you have a binational river border, that does not necessarily mean that the control of the water upriver is binational by any means, as your, as your book suggests. Well, it should be, you know, according to, according to treaty law, but but there are all these reasons why uh, treaty law ends up coming up short. And by treaty law, I mean the 1906 treaty about the division of the Rio Grande waters between Mexico and the United States, and then the 1944, I want to say, treaty that uh, that dealt with the Colorado, the mouth of the Colorado that crosses the border. And, you know, those treaties were written largely in terms of quantity of water. Mm -hmm. And what they lacked was provisions about quality. And so, uh, especially yeah. on the Colorado and in the, and down in the Rio Grande Delta, down in South Texas and, and Tamaulipas, what you find is that um, all the, the irrigation systems upriver had created a situation in which the quality of the water in terms of uh, how salinized it was, like what the, the salt content was, total dissolved solids, which is bad for crops, they didn't take that into consideration. So the, the water quality was low. And, um, and then of course, just drought cycles mean that sometimes the, sometimes the U.S. can't deliver on its treaty. Well, it's treaty obligations in terms of quantity, either. And so, one of the things that um, I think, if you if you are looking at, if you're trying to tell this history from the perspective of treaty law or from the perspective of even the agency that's controlling the movement of people, what you see is intentions and policies. Um, and so, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you tried to get at. I mean, th through looking at the water agency, it's you can see some of the some of the effects and the lived realities that don't 
correspond to those treatings. But were there other ways that you tried to find um, what it felt like to to live within or to belong to this region? I, I think there's a generational story to be told about especially hydraulic engineering projects that gets at your question. The, mm -hmm. And by hydraulic engineering projects, what I mean is everything from river straightening projects like they did on the section of the Rio Grande. I mean the construction of huge dams, two of which end up on the International Divide, Falcon Dam and Amistad Dam, and, um, and other kinds of diversion dams that, that like reroute river water into, you know, into cropland. And, and that sort of thing. And also flood control projects. So all sorts of different ways of trying to manage water, try to keep it under control. And the early days of this, the early 20th century, 1910s, 1920s, they developed reinforced concrete rebar. They basically were able, they, they figured out technologically how you you could successfully build huge dams like this and, and do these like monumental river engineering projects that you couldn't do before. And I think that there was a, there was a really, there was a real authenticity to the engineers expectations for how well they would be able to control just natural flows. Right. Um, and I, I yeah. Faith in yeah, the ability so, to so, control. You know, Nature. Yes, I think it's, I mean, it's easy point. to read big projects like that in terms of hubris. It's like, oh, look at these people. They think they can, they think they control nature. And, you know, we know that's not, that's not possible. But, but did they? Uh, you know, th there's certainly plenty of big personalities to go around and, and, you know, plenty of great historians have written about irrigation history and just the kind of monomaniacal, personalities that were behind a lot of these projects. So that's certainly the case. But I think that that in the border region, one of the primary objectives that they had in trying to build these big projects to control river water was flood control. Precisely because there had been just catastrophic floods in the border region. And I don't mean just on the, the, the border line. I mean, in the whole in the area, especially in the drylands around the International Divide. And the thing you have to understand, I think a lot of people don't about desert water and desert rivers, is that deserts are defined as dry places. So there's not very much water, but boy, when there is, they flood. <laughs> you, you better look out because because they're impossible to predict water's coming from all sorts of, not just the river, but all these arroyos that, that, you know, these small canyons, these small washes around, around rivers. And it was just, it, 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 it killed a lot of people and it made a lot of people's lives in the border region on both sides of the border, really uh, devastating and, and uncertain. And so there's this real genuine, I think, a desire to ameliorate that on the part of both the Mexican engineers and, and the U.S. engineers that worked on these river projects. Now, 
The second and third generations, once you get into the the 1950s and and especially 1970s and beyond, you start to see, well, there's actually side effects to these projects. Water quality, you know, degradation, you know, probably chief among them. It also, you know, becomes clear that a lot of these water projects are, are health hazards. They, you know, there was a particular case in, in El Paso where one of the big irrigation canals ran through the Segundo Barrio, the second ward of El Paso, one of the poorest neighborhoods in town, right down there by the border. And it was an open irrigation ditch that moved water from the river out to the croplands in south uh, East El Paso. And there were kids just dying constantly. Neighborhood kids drowning. It was a, such a common event that, you know, the water engineers, certainly the people in the neighborhood were, were well aware. It's like, well, yeah, this is just a phenomenon that that happens that certainly is way outside the the anticipated results of irrigators or river straighteners or uh, any of the like, but the complexities and in these cases, some of the tragedies associated with these big projects have to be read to my mind as like part of this very ambiguous border history, because some of these projects also saved a lot of people's lives from, from flooding that had been the scourge of that, of a lot of these regions to begin with. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. It is very easy to, from the perspective of um, unintended consequences, look and say, well, these people thought they could control everything, but what they were doing was trying to fix a problem. And there's general agreement that, 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 that the flooded landscape of, you know, the West is, is absent of water and shaped by water, of course. And so, yeah, I get, I, I think that's a really interesting um, way of, way but of I talking think that, about these projects. You know, I, I want to put this very, very precisely, but, I, you know, I think that among a lot of folks today who are so crestfallen and angry and confused about the vitriol associated with border talk and border policy in, um, in today's political atmosphere. I think they, you know, a lot of folks have developed a real skepticism and pessimism about any kind of border policy solution that, that purports to solve, uh, some intractable problem. You know, I think a lot of people think, well, it's not a real problem to begin with, you know, like poor people trying to find a better life, people trying to reunify their families, asylum seekers, you know, that's not, that doesn't count as a, as a genuine problem and any policy solution, especially policing policy solution that seeks to respond to that as such, you know, is disingenuous. But I think there is historically, and I tend to uh, agree (laughs) with uh with that line of reasoning but i think that historically there is such a thing as a as a more genuine identification to uh, of border difficulties and border problems that really in a lot of cases have nothing to do with with immigration or or contraband or anything like that that have to do with these water projects it's just like well how do we keep these floodwaters out of people's houses and out of people's fields and, and I think that's in a different category and, and important to, to hold in mind 
even as we're critical of some of the more disingenuous diagnoses of of border quote unquote problems mm-hmm. uh, sites of problems um, can lead to yeah, constructive I, solutions I, yeah i think potentially yeah i hope yeah <laughs> <laughs> we we can hope um, yeah so i wanted to return to something that you were when you were talking about your experience in the archives in texas and how you stumbled on these blueprints and these these images and one of the things that your book has in it which is makes it so so readable and so interesting is just image after image of hand drawn maps photographs all of these visual records um, so i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you picked those and how they how you think they well, helped tell the story i think there are what 52 images in the book which is unusual for a historian's work like mine and, and the folks at UT Press who have this built environment list and, and were just, you know, really appreciated what I was trying to do with those images. And so they were, they basically just let me keep them, keep them all. I didn't have to fight for anything. And they, and they reproduced them with just extraordinary, I think, skill and beauties, full bleeds out to the margins. You can really, for some of these more complex, you know, fine, you know, fine print kind of maps, you're actually able to see those in the book. And I think that even for, for border folks who pick up this book and, and take a look at it, they're not going to recognize a lot of the images that I have reproduced in the, the, throughout. And the reason for that is they're a particular kind, they represent a particular kind of vision of the border which is uh, that of the construction projects. And so, you know, it's, it's a lot of blueprints. It's a lot of aerial photography. It's a lot of maps, different kinds of maps. And what, if there is something that most of the images in the book have in common, it's that they're views from above. Either in map form, where it's abstract enough photographs, but they're still like looking down on the border, or they're photographs taken from government planes of construction projects, dam construction projects, fence construction projects, and so on and so forth. And I think that most of us who grew up like I did near the U.S.-Mexico border, you know, we don't really have occasion most of the, most of the time to look at it from above. We're there on the ground which can be, depending on what your interest is in space, kind of disorienting, right? you're like, well, all right, I can see this block. I can see this port of entry. I can see this part of the fence. I can see this dam. But, you know, I don't really know what, uh, how it connects to, to other environments and, and other places. And so my hope in reproducing the images that I did and why I chose the images I did, which I thought were the the most interesting and most revelatory of this, this very uncommon view of the international divide was one to bring that view into the awareness of a larger public who's interested in, in the border, not just in terms of policy, but in terms of very specific localities on the border, but also as a kind of a, an invitation for those of us who are in fact experiencing the border on the ground to to expand our understanding of 
of where it is we're standing and, and what it's connected to along not just the entirety of the line, but also uh, in terms of the environments that cross the border as well. Yeah, there some of them are really beautiful images. There's very interesting ones. One that sticks out to me is the picture of the uh, of the man who is signaling with mirrors. Yeah, and yeah. As a means that of communicating. Was one of my, that was one of my favorite images. I almost fell out of my chair when I found that in the Harry Branson Center at uh, at UT Austin. And you know West Texas. You appreciate where he, where he is out there in Marathon. The, the story behind this that, that we're talking about, this was a photograph taken, a series of photographs actually taken in the 1960s of this guy named Ben Gobos, who, according to the photographer, was a curandero, like kind of a, a folk healer, but also uh, this pack train dress teamster who um, spent his entire life out there in the desert of the Big Bend region of West Texas, based in Marathon, one of the small railroad towns out there in that, in that, uh, in that part of the desert. And he was an avisador, like a signaler, during the Mexican mm -hmm. Revolution in the 1910s. And according to him... And according to the photographer who photographed him doing these signals, that was a, a mechanism that Mexican-Americans and Mexicans in that region developed to protect themselves from what they saw to be the uh, indiscriminate attacks on their people by the Texas Rangers and by the U.S. Cavalry who were patrolling that region in the context of the Mexican Revolution as a kind of a, like the, what I call the first militarization of the U.S.-Mexico border was the actual deployment of 160,000 soldiers and National Guardsmen to the, to the international border during the Mexican Revolution. And a lot of Mexican-American folks and Mexicans living on the U.S. side got caught up in this kind of panic that there was going to be some violence spill over the border from the violence on, on the other side. And so folks developed ways of, of protecting themselves. And, and one of them were, were these avisos, these, uh, these signals that they would send with mirror flashes. You could see in that open country a mirror flash with the sun for, you know, almost 100 miles. And so he's demonstrating that in these two photos. One of the photos, it's just you can see him holding the mirror. And then in the second photo, you can see him flashing. And oh, my God. It just blinds you. you. It, yeah, from, from the photo itself, you. and I think it's uh, it's a to me it was a beautiful example of how the construction of the border, the physical construction of the border, was not just about big infrastructure projects. There was also this these ephemeral kinds of infrastructure, ranging from footpaths and the, and then the 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 low tech but very effective kind of infrastructures of, of communication like these signalers out there in West Texas that to me really filled out the, the story of what it means to think about the U.S.-Mexico border in terms of, uh, of construction projects and infrastructure systems. Yeah, that's such a, that's such a great way of thinking about a, a border where you have everything from rope bridges to 
multinational yeah. dam projects. And, and it's amazing, you know, speaking of the Big Bend area, there's a there's another photo in there of this this cross border tramway that used there was a mine in Coahuila, and then they rigged up this seven mile tramway with these huge buckets to just haul ore up to this part of West Texas and take it by donkey train all the way to the the railroad, the Southern Pacific that stopped at Marathon, and I went out there to Big Bend. After I finished writing the books, I'd seen this photograph and I drove out to the trailhead where there's this old tram. Now the trestles are completely collapsed, but the wire that they used and, and a lot of the buckets that they used to haul this, uh, this ore out of Mexico are still there on the ground. You can still go out there and see them. And it reminded me of two things. One, you know, the relative durability of construction projects that that have this staying power, even though this was collapsed, right? But there was this kind of this legacy and this residual built environment of the U.S.-Mexico border. But it also reminded me of even in this really remote area of Big Bend National Park, which would have been even more remote in the early 20th century when this mine was active, it was still, because it was about this history of extractivism and and railroads and interconnectivity part and parcel of this much larger integrated resource frontier connection connective tissue between the united states and mexico which is another fundamental building block of of how we think about the u.s mexico border as a construction site not just the construction projects that are on the border itself but all the construction projects, specifically railroads and highways that crossed the border and that were purposefully put there by business interests and government interests on both sides of the line that are intentionally meant to join U.S. and Mexico markets. Because one of the stories you tell is that um, the interest has not exclusively been in controlling space and preventing people from moving. One of the major impulses of development has also been business, conducting business and moving resources and moving people across. And That's exactly right. Resources. And I don't, I can't remember the numbers offhand, but in the last chapter of the book, I talk about the number of bridges that were built across the Rio Grande along the Texas, Mexico, Texas, the Chihuahua, Coahuila, and Orion, Tamaulipas border after the free trade agreement in, in 94, or really before that, in anticipation of the, the free trade agreement. And so you see really from the early 1990s up until about 2010, you see that there are actually two major construction projects taking place on the U.S.-Mexico border. One is fencing, like modern, durable heavy uh, barriers, vehicle barriers and, and pedestrian barriers of the border fence that we already have. And two, and arguably more importantly in terms of our ability to interpret the history of the U.S.-Mexico border, the construction of new ports of entry, new ways of new connective tissue between the two countries, expanded ports of entry, more lanes added, bigger inspection stations uh, for, for commerce, for commercial goods, uh, new trucking regulations, 
that allowed, in theory at least, uh, you know, trucks to cross the border more easily. And, you know, entirely new highway systems built, uh, especially on the Mexican side, to accommodate the anticipated and actualized huge uptick in trade and, and overland commerce. And so, so that, to me, any conversation that about the barriers in the interstitial space between the ports of entry has to be accompanied by a conversation about the expansion of the, the ports of entry, which, of course, in Texas, because it's a river border, are bridges. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a really, a really helpful and I think um, fascinating reminder of the way that we don't talk about the border very often, um, unless we, unless you are yeah. living there. So I, one of my final questions that I wanted to ask you um, is kind of building on that is, you know, this is, this is a book that I would love to teach in future classes on the U.S.-Mexico border. And part of the reason I would like to do that is because I, I don't teach on the, on the border, right? I teach in the upper Midwest. And so what do you think your book offers um, in terms of understanding um, what the border means or, or what living on the border feels like? Or, or any other sort of contribution you want to talk about to the scholarship? What do you, what do you think? He, yeah, you're up there on the other border. See. Which, which border, you know, for, for, yeah. for you at all. <laughs> Much closer. What we mean when we talk about the border, obviously, is a, is a moving target. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's funny what we don't yeah. mean. There's a water border, actually. There is. Very there is uh, a huge water border up there in the Great Lakes region. But... Yeah. Um, well, I think again, you know, I never thought I'd hear myself say this as a as a native New Mexican, but I've just learned so much from living in Texas, and and, and more more specifically, I, I've learned so much from my students. This enormous privilege of of having taught so many folks from the the Texas border towns, from what we call the Valley, the Rio Grande Valley, that's the Delta in South Texas. And from uh, from El Paso and from even some of the smaller border towns, Del Rio, um, Rado for sure. And um, and so I, you know, I've come at this question of you know how to how to teach this stuff and and how my book fits into that from from two different points of view. In the classroom, one of my biggest challenges has been to denaturalize the kinds of expertise my students bring about a specific border town and put it in the context of a larger history. You know, so, you know, I've spent a lot of time in El Paso uh, because that's near where I grew up in Las Cruces, New Mexico. So I know that area pretty well. And I write about that, that area a lot in the book. I've spent a decent amount of time down in the Valley, um, Harlingen, Brownsville, all those towns down there, but I don't know it as well as my students who grew up there and in Matamoros on the other side. And they bring a really specific kind of expertise about those, those, those cities and those places to my class. That's about the broader history of the border. And so to me, it's, it's a great teaching moment to both learn from them about and let them kind of flex their muscles about the the kinds of genealogical and, and place-based expertise they have there 
but then also to just totally blow their minds by showing them Ambos Nogales, right? The, like the, the two towns named Nogales in southern Arizona and northern Sonora, which are just on the land border, divided by this big fence, just obviously, you know, totally arbitrarily. And they recognize certain parts of that because they're, they're border people. But they also are like, what am I looking at? I'm looking at this desert valley and I grew up basically in the subtropics down in the, where they get like a yard of rain every year down in the Delta. And one of the things I wanted to do with the book is try to strike as best a balance I could between very specific kinds of information about particular border communities and particular border places through the lens of these building projects, while also maintaining some sense of a larger narrative about this, this artificial place we call the border, this 2000 mile kind of Frankenstein's monster of, of all sorts of different environments, different sized cities, different industries, different relationships to the land in terms of ranching and farming, different kinds of farms and so on and so forth. And so that to me is, is what has worked really well for me in, in class. And what I hope works about the book is that, is that toggling back and forth between specific border places and then this larger concept of a, of a federally constructed through policies, international divide. Yeah, an ambitious, an ambitious task, but I think one that is pretty elegantly done. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, I have taken up uh, quite a lot of your time. So um, I want to wrap up with any, do you have any um, further things that you want to talk about that we haven't hit yet or um, recommendations for people who are more interested, interested in, in reading more after they finish? Oh, well, I think I would... I think I would conclude with this that's kind of become the central preoccupation with, with my teaching and, and lectures and, and writing is the fact that, you know, we've, we've gotten to this point where the, the border is this popular concept, this popular topic for debate, for rancor, for um, uh, just a, a lot of controversy on a lot of different levels. And yet most Americans and most Mexicans have never been there. And if they have, <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. they've only been to one place. They've crossed it like one, even if they grew up there, right? They, they're like, well, I know this, this is my border town. This is my mm -hmm. border, you know, sister city. And, and this is where, this is where I'm from. Um, and that's what I know. And I'll just extrapolate from that. I just, I guess I know the rest of the border. This was the mistake I made, you know, gr growing up and, and translating my own personal experience in one part of the border to, uh, to a scholarly project. And I realized that I really didn't know much of anything about other parts of the border, even though I knew this one place really well in Southern New Mexico. And so I, I guess I would close by just in, inviting people to, to think, not just through my book, but, but through their own experiences about the diversity of, of people and the diversity of environments on the U.S.-Mexico divide. And what that means is if you can, you know, if, if you have the resources and the means and the, and the 
the authorization, you know, through legal documents and that and, and that sort of thing. To visit as many places on the border as you can, then then I would recommend that you do because it, even to this day, after spending the last you know fifteen years traveling around to as many parts of the border as I as I could, and then really my whole childhood rooted in this one part of the international divide. I, I still, every time I go to a different part of the line, I, I, I learn something brand new. So that's my invitation is, is to the border itself and to as many places you can get to on the border itself. And not just as a, an intellectual exercise or as an, an environmental appreciation kind of exercise, but also because I think that if there is an antidote to how badly the the U.S.-Mexico border has devolved in the political discourse, the antidote is is familiarity. Is to go there. Is to is to witness. Is to go there. Yes, yeah, actually, for, you know, is to actually you know learn through firsthand experience and hopefully through books like mine more about the more about this place. Wonderful. Well, thank you. Yeah, that's a well, perfect. Thank you place so much for the invitation. Yeah. No. No problem. That was C.J. Alvarez and Elena McGrath in conversation. C.J. Alvarez is an assistant professor at University of Texas at Austin. His first book, Border Land, Border Water, A History of Construction on the U.S.-Mexico Divide, is a history of the built world of the U.S.-Mexico borderline and is available as of October 2019 from University of Texas Press. Elena McGrath is a visiting assistant professor at Carleton College, currently working on a book about mining communities in Bolivia's 1952 revolution and revolutionary change. You've been listening to Edge Effects, a production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Nicole Bennett, Jessica Montez, and me, Laura Perry. The music you're hearing is by Julian Lynch. You can get all of our episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to EdgeFX wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review or tell a friend about it. That really helps connect us with new listeners. You can follow us on Twitter at EdgeFXMag. And as always, keep up with the steady flow of great content about cultural and environmental change across the full sweep of human history at edgefx.net.